Beso. Good evening. How are you all doing? Good to see you. Welcome to a Wednesday night. Appleton, Stevens Point, good to see you guys over there too. Yes, you got me tonight, not Pastor Mark. So Pastor Lathan is back. Let's have a big hand for him. Where are you at? I don't know. He's around somewhere. He's Okay. So he's, he was back in the office today. Uh, he and I had a wrestling match for a while. He, he beat me. So that shows you what kind of physical shape I'm in. So he's getting his strength back, building up those red blood cells, getting ready to rumble. So it's good to be here with you guys tonight. And uh, so uh, Pastor Mark's sick, but uh, uh, he'll, I'm assuming he'll be back by next week. So just pray for him. He's really under the weather with the flu or something. Uh, so you got me, and tonight is uh, story time with Pastor Joe. <laughs> so I finally put a message together that's got some of my stories in it. So, uh, so some of the stories I'm going to tell tonight are, are actually for real. They're not fiction. They're nonfiction stories about uh, our time on the mission field in the 70s when we were hippie freaks. And... Uh, I've written the whole record down in this book, so here's some shameless promotion from me about my book. And if you'd like to read some extraordinary events, uh, uh, this will fill in all the details, plus it'll, it'll give you all of Pastor Mark's dirty laundry from when he was just starting out in the ministry, so even better, right? So uh, I'll have these up in front here. We have these in the bookstore, but you can buy one from me tonight if you'd like. Uh, and a special promotional price tonight, a dollar off the book. So, just because you're here. I'm sorry? That brings it down to $14. Make that check out to the Joe Greer Retirement Fund. We're going to talk tonight a little bit about a, a message I've entitled A Narrative for War. And uh, we're going to read in the book of Acts, because that's what I call the book of Acts, is the, a narrative for war. And uh, just a few verses to start off with, and then we're going to go into some information on it. And at the end of the night, tonight, uh, I'm going to have my cell phone number. We'll have a Q&A session at the end tonight. And uh, you can ask me whatever questions about some of this stuff or some of the adventures I tell you about tonight. And uh, it... It, you know, we'll, we'll see how much time we've got left, but you can just text them to me, and then we'll see. Uh, and those of you guys in Stevens Point and Appleton, you can text me as well whenever the number pops up there. I don't think it's up there yet. Uh, we're reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, this is Luke writing this to a gentleman named Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then fast forward to the next chapter and referring to Peter the apostle, 
those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Fast forward again, Acts chapter 4. Then they called them, meaning Peter and John, in again. This was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, called Peter and John in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in the God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. So as you read through the book of Acts, you're going to discover that there's very little teaching there. Uh, it's a narrative of miracles and power and production. That's what you get when you read the book of Acts. It is the written chronicle of what happened in the very first church in history, how Jesus commissioned them and then left them and then filled them and then sent them out. No wasted time, no wasted energy, no wasted resources. Every person was given a job to do, a role to fill, a ministry to other people, the book of Acts is a record of how they pulled off this amazing task and the results that God gave them. These people, remember who these people were. They were basically invisible people to the world in those days. Nameless whispers, living in a worthless crevice in the Roman Empire called Judea. And they rose up, these worthless whispers of people, with a roar, they went forth, they were unstoppable, and we are their kin. It's amazing. And the church of Jesus continues forward, unstoppable in every corner of the vast earth that you and I inhabit today. It's amazing when you think about it from our origins. Now, every once in a while, I think it's good to regain our focus and take another look at why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. Now, clearly, the disciples' perception of following Jesus meant that they were called to do something. So that's what they did, and the world has never been the same. It was very clear in their minds, we've been called to do something. We are not called to sit here, we are called to go and do something, and the, the world has changed. Now, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew and to James and John, follow me. And they immediately did so. Of course, no sane person would do something like that unless you were convinced you were going somewhere that was worth your time. What pulls a man so strongly? What, is it, what, it, what was it about that pull? It was so insistent, the calling on their lives so insistent that the men, these four men left their culture, lifestyle, their lifetime family and friends, they, their lifetime town, their surroundings, career, their wives, in Peter's case, children, they left everything. All of that receding in the rearview mirror, well, obviously, Peter stayed married, going forward with a man they knew nothing about and from whom they had only heard two words, follow me. 
That's extraordinary. These men were so focused that later on, Paul the Apostle, one of them, wrote this to the Philippians, this one thing I do. That was the, the nature of the focus in these men. One thing I do. And later, in response to the one thing in which this to- the church was totally engaged in doing this one thing, the spirit of the world rose up against the church and Christians began to suffer, horribly suffer. So much so that Peter was compelled to write a letter to them, to this suffering church. 1 Peter 4, 12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then he elaborated on that in the next chapter. Be alert. Of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Everybody was going through this. It wasn't just the people in Jerusalem. The whole world was rising up against the Christian community wherever they could find them and persecuting them and making them suffer. They were in shock. That's why he wrote this letter like this. These people were in shock. It was, it was kind of suffering like, it was kind of like a first century version of PTSD. To the point where Peter, he's trying to comfort them. You guys, it's okay. Don't be surprised at this. Remember Jesus talked about this. Here it is, it's happening now, okay? Something strange is happening to you. I know, I know what you feel like. It's been happening to us too. Don't worry, it's gonna be okay. So the church in its infant stages actually made quite an impact. Uh, They responded to a supernatural calling from Jesus, from God. They gave a supernatural proclamation of the gospel. They performed supernatural miracles, experienced a stunning transformation in people's lives, and there was supernatural growth in the church, up to three, 4,000 people every time Peter preached. It was a daily growth, and then followed by all of this opposition from the enemy and this suffering, and some of them even a martyr's death. I mean, it was a dramatic time in history. This year, We are now in the first quarter of 2017, and we're looking ahead. We're not going to look back. We're going to look ahead. And there are some incredible things that happened last year. You saw some of that, the wonderful stats that Pastor Mark pointed out about our missions outreach this year and how cool that was. And it's awesome, and we're celebrating that. We're going to do a little bit more of that this Sunday. But just, just to know that it's great to celebrate for the moment, But in the long run, we look ahead. What do we got to do this year? What's ahead of us this year? There are some incredible things that have happened. Uh, God's done individually some wonderful things in your lives this past year. And we celebrate that. But always, always, the direction of our focus is forward. It has to be. What are we going to do in 2017? 
And that's why I'm calling this a narrative for war, and here's why. Because the vocabulary describing believers in the New Testament is oftentimes different than what we use today when we describe believers. The vocabulary of the believers or descriptive of the believers in the New Testament were words like soldier, laborer, slave, saint. Uh, When you refer to yourself as a believer today, you probably would not refer to yourself as a slave. But that's what they did in the New Testament. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Laborers together in the Lord's harvest field. And you pick up a message from that vocabulary, and that is this. First century Christian faith meant that everybody worked at the church. Everybody did. Everyone was a servant at the church. You lived a holy life as you were serving because you were both a servant and a saint. And you remained vigilant for war because war is what you had just encountered. The Christian realized that he had stepped over an invisible line in the sand. On one side, relative tranquility and peace. On the other side, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of sacrifice and maybe even danger. It was not and still is not a quiet war that you and I have entered into. Whether you realize it or not tonight, if you're a believer, you are at war. It's not a quiet one. It is one in which there are high stakes and one in which we engage daily. Every day, Christians, you are in a war. There is a vile sociopathic enemy who has invaded your territory and wishes to destroy you and everything you love and everything you are. He has no rules. He never plays situations the same twice. He does not play fair. Of course, he will play something twice if it worked the first time on you. He's not stupid. And he pounds away at you like a punch-drunk fighter. And he just keeps hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting. He will not stop. And he shoots and he attacks and he slices and he inflicts. It's the nature of this enemy. And he, he humiliates and he belittles anyone who gets in his way. Especially if they bear Christ's name. He is the classic science fiction character, the devil. The zombie, he just keeps getting up after you shoot him, right? You think finally he's dead and you turn your back and you walk away and all of a sudden you look back and here he is again, coming right at you. Tonight I'm gonna talk about the Christian worker soldier who finds himself in a battle to the death with a reminder from Paul the Apostle, therefore, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This encouragement to a group of people who were on the edge of becoming an endangered species in those days. And yet somehow they were convinced, even though 
Rome was hunting them down and annihilating them everywhere they went. They were convinced they were going to win. Tonight, I want to share these stories because a lot of you ask about my stories. (laughs) And these are actually war stories, you guys. Uh, Not guns and bullets and ammo and bombs, but these are real stories of battle and chaos and unexpected circumstances, true-to-life people we encountered in the spiritual landscapes and battlefields to which we were assigned by God in the 70s, the 1970s. My experience as a worker soldier began as soon as I gave my life to Jesus Christ. October 16th, 1970, 8 p.m. in the evening, Indianapolis, Indiana. When you get saved, like we did, you think you're just getting forgiveness for your sins and you're going to clean up your act a little bit, and then you discover not too far into it that it's never that simple. (laughs) The devil does not want you crossing that invisible line I just spoke about. He does not. You will not know that he exists until you cross that line. And then you'll find out. And that becomes a problem. Because you can't see the line. You don't realize it's there, but it's there. Nevertheless, we cross the line and it arouses his fury. I was in a successful rock band when I became a Christian. All five of the guys in my band became Christians on the same night. We lived together in a house on 38th Street in Indianapolis. We had rock and roll dreams that did not include giving our lives to Jesus. We were hungry though, literally starving musicians. We had nothing in the house that night but cauliflower and butterscotch syrup and then we were invited to a potluck by some Christians in West Indianapolis you can only imagine what went through our minds when they said pot luck (laughs) never did two words go together better in our world (laughs) oh yeah baby we're on board We went to the pot luck, which was then followed by a Bible study. Of course, they had not informed us that there would be a Bible study following the pot luck. We heard about Jesus, and all five of us gave our hearts to Christ that night, on our knees, weeping over our sins, thoroughly overcome by the power and presence of a God that we did not know prior to that night. We went home very happy from that prayer meeting, not due to the pot. There is no feeling in the world, you guys, like being forgiven. We flushed our drugs down the toilet. We dumped the booze down the sink. We started writing new songs about Jesus because in those days, there was no such thing as Christian contemporary music. We had to make it up as we went along. Our first gig following our salvation was at a bar in Indianapolis called The Green Onion. He lost $1,000 in liquor sales the first week that we were there and fired us because we kept talking to his customers about Jesus between our breaks. Nobody was drinking and everybody was listening to what we were saying. And he says, get out of here. Get out of here. So we had to start writing new songs and playing to a new audience. (laughs) 
And there were many young people in Indianapolis who were great fans of our band, and they began to stop by our house when they heard about our new lives and our new music. And we actually started a prayer meeting right there and a Bible study for these teenagers, and it was just amazing. And then the cults, the religious cults, found out about what was going on in our house and amongst these young, young people in the, in the city. And the cults, like the children of God, began to prey on these young teenage believers like wolves. They just, it was weird. They just descended on the city like they had their spiritual sensors up and they just descended on Indy and they started praying on all of our kids. And we didn't have enough Bible knowledge to know what was going on. And then, and then a young lady named Jerry came to one of our Bible studies who was married to a satanic high priest. And we experienced firsthand with Jerry what it was like to deal with a person who was demon-possessed and addicted to heroin. And before she received Christ, when Jerry would come over, I'd be praying for her, she would sit across the room and growl at me. And she would tell me, if you don't leave this room right now, I'm gonna cut your throat and kill you. Of course, that wasn't Jerry talking. And then she called me one night. Please come down to my house. Because my husband, the priest, just appeared to me in a vision and he hovered over the crib of my baby and he threatened her and he said, you're either going to stop this Christian nonsense or I'm going to kill the baby. All of this kind of thing breaking loose on us. I mean, I'm only like three months old in my faith. I don't even know where the gospel of John is. And I'm talking to a, I'm talking to a satanic priestess filled with the devil. Young people with their lives messed up, coming, asking for help, asking for the way to go. And all we could do really was just offer them Jesus and then pray for them. And what else are you gonna do when that's all that you know? It was, it was really intense. Like that warfare I was just talking about. Like every day we were living in all of this blessing, but at the same time all of this ugliness was coming at us. It was just hard to process it all at one time and it messed with my head, but we just had to keep moving forward. We didn't know what else to do. And I had never seen a demon manifest before. I'd never been privy to the inner workings of satanic ritual or worship. I mean, it was just crazy. Those were days when being a co-worker in Christ's church also meant that you were a comrade in arms with other believers because we had battles every day with these young people. Their lives, all of them taken over by the devil, addictions, abuse, murder, runaways, byproducts of a disintegrating culture with nowhere to turn. Later on, Gail and I met, my wife Gail, uh, in a later version of this Jesus freak invasion, uh, I moved to Milwaukee, and that's where we met. Pastor Mark and Debbie and Gail and I traveled together for five years after that in a devoted but clueless group of militants moving from city to city with a huge circus tent, semi-trucks, buses, campers. We would meet every night under the tent, rock and roll for Jesus, Hundreds of kids coming forward every night to experience the miracle of a changed life. We met all kinds of people on the streets of the cities that we visited, and we would invite them to our meetings at night, and believe me, we got all kinds of people. <laughs> Julie, Julie was her name, the transsexual transvestite, 
six foot five inches of gorgeous in what had been a man's body who gave her heart to Jesus late one night in Moline, Illinois when our girls prayed with her on the streets after she got off work. They brought her back to the coffee house where we were all sleeping that night. Uh, we had one room, so that we put a bunch of sheets right down the middle of the room <laughs> with a laundry line, you know, and the girls were on one side and the guys were on the other side, bed sheets strung across the room. I was the leader. It's midnight, so the girls didn't know what to do with Julie, and so they woke me up, of course. <laughs> Joe, wake up. We just prayed with this girl to receive Jesus, but we need to know what to do next. She really got touched by God, Joe. She's so changed, you're not going to believe it. And I'm half asleep, and I'm going, what do you mean? Can you just get her a cot and put her to bed, and we'll talk about it in the morning? Joe, you don't understand. She's a transvestite. She's a woman. She used to be a man. Now she's a woman. Which side of the sheets should she sleep on tonight? <laughs> I mean, how do you sort that out? <laughs> By the way, Julie is still Julie. And she still serves Jesus in Des Moines, Iowa, and she's a librarian. Isn't that cool? Oh, then there was Leo. We went to San Antonio, Texas, and uh, we set up our tent there and began witnessing on the streets of... San Antonio, and Leo shows up one night. He's running from the mafia, but he didn't tell us that. <laughs> and in order to hide from the mafia, he pretended to give his life to Jesus. And he followed us to the next city, which was Phoenix, Arizona. So we traveled together thinking that Leo got saved, but he didn't get saved. He's using us as a cover because he's a former hitman for the mafia. And he was, so he's, here he's, here's Leo standing by me on the street corner, and I'm talking to people about Jesus, and he's standing there talking to people about Jesus, inviting them to the meeting, and he's no more a Christian than a catfish. And, 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 and Leo, we move on from Phoenix to Las Vegas, uh, and um, in, in Vegas, he's on the street corner uh, with a Bible in front of the four aces in uh, Las Vegas, and this big black limousine pulls up in front of the curb, and the window rolls down, and he hears, Leo, how you doing? Come here, we need to talk. And Leo returns to us later that day, still alive, but very sober, and ready to talk seriously with me about his faith in Jesus. <laughs> Later that week, I get a phone call with a request to meet a guy in front of the four aces that night in order to negotiate our presence in front of the casinos in Vegas. Of course, we're standing out in front of the casinos with our Bibles talking to people about Jesus and the casino owners don't like that because we're killing their business. And so... A guy calls me to have a talk, and let's negotiate this. How are we going to work this out? So I'm heading out the door to that meeting that night. I don't know what's going on. And Leo's in the room, and he asks me, where are you going? And I tell him, and he says, oh, no, you're not. And I'm not what, I reply, failing to understand Leo's petulance toward me in that moment. You are not going down there to meet 
that guy. And I'm like, dude, I'm the leader of this posse. Don't, don't be telling me what I can and can't do. Why are you speaking to me like that? Leo walks up to me, stares into my eyes, doesn't budge. He's got that assassin look on his face. He says, you're not going anywhere, Brother Joe. I know these people. This is a setup. They will spot you on the sidewalk. The limousine window will go down. The sawed-off shotgun will extend through that window. It will cut you in half, and they will drive off, and nobody will ask any questions. You're going to have to get by me tonight if you insist on doing this. I know them. You do not know them. And I was really in no mood to fight Leo just so that I could get myself killed. So I, I stayed home that night. And so Leo, the mob enforcer, persuaded me. Well, then there was Pierre. We met Pierre in Phoenix. Pierre actually had a real encounter with Jesus in Phoenix one night in our tent, and he wanted to join our group and travel with us. And Pierre, we discovered later, like Leo, was a former mob hitman. And so, as you might imagine, he and Leo hit it off immediately. <laughs> Swapping stories, right? And then there was Napoleon. Napoleon started to attend our meetings uh, while we were in Phoenix. His name was not really Napoleon, but he thought he was Napoleon. And he would attend the meetings dressed like Napoleon. <laughs> This was Napoleon the Schizophrenic. And he brought his very real sword with him one night. And he stood up in the middle of our worship service and he drew that sword and he just began slashing away at the audience in the middle of me worship, leading the worship team. Napoleon was tackled before anybody got hurt by two of our alert brothers. So heads up, celebration security team. You never know what's going to happen on Sunday morning. And Napoleon was taken away by the police. And then, of course, he reappeared later after it was released because you can't keep a good Napoleon down. And uh, Pierre, the hitman, traveled with us uh, to Los Angeles and then Las Vegas and then just disappeared. And then he reappeared again back in Phoenix. And we thought, oh, and so one of our members ran into Pierre a few weeks after we left Phoenix, and he had left us, and he goes back to Phoenix, and my, this brother that's on our team had to go back and do some business in Phoenix for us, and, and Pierre sees him downtown, Phoenix, on the street, and he says, hey, John, or whatever our guy's name was, remember Napoleon? And the guy says, oh, oh I remember Napoleon, how could we forget? And Pierre says, you know, I met, I met Napoleon in an alley the other night. You won't have to worry about him anymore. He was very proud of his accomplishment because, of course, he, he was doing us a Christian favor, right? Kind of like your cat when he kills a bird and brings it in the house to show off with great pride what he has just done for you. How could you not ap appreciate Pierre's generosity? That happened. Then there was Joe Amsterdam. Amsterdam, because that's the city where we first met Joe. Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Joe was a pimp and a drug dealer. Uh, he was the ringleader for all the other pimps in Amsterdam who attacked us 
beat us and threw us in the sewage canals that ran through the middle of Amsterdam because we were in his territory, standing in front of his whorehouses, witnessing to his prostitutes and their customers, which resulted in the loss of 70% of their business in one week. This red light district in the heart of Amsterdam, 40 square blocks of whorehouses and porno shops, prostitutes sitting in shop windows like a gigantic downtown mall, customers strolling the streets, shopping for just the right lady in that window, us in the middle, smiling, sporting big Bibles, telling the men that Jesus was watching them as they window shopped. And so Joe Amsterdam and his gang reported us eventually to, of all people, the chief of police. (laughs) This is the biggest, most powerful pimp in Amsterdam going to the chief of police and complaining about us. The chief calls us in. He warns us that if we continue, there are going to be dire consequences. And he, the police chief, would have no control over that outcome. And so here's a police chief warning us off of the prostitution industry because we're the problem. And then saying, if we don't leave, he will refuse to send his officers in to help us. We were undaunted, (laughs) stupid, scared to death, but undaunted. And we realized that we, and when Joe finally realized we were not going to back down, he came to our tent meeting one night with a gun, with the intentions of assassinating the preacher in the pulpit that night in front of the whole crowd, because you just did not mess with Joe Amsterdam. Check it out. He enters the back of the tent while the preaching is, is going on, and who should stroll up to Joe and start talking with him about Jesus? Leo. The former mafia hitman from San Antonio, Texas. And Leo began to share the love of God with Joe just as the service was ending and the preacher was giving an invitation for people to come forward. And Leo walks with Joe down the aisle and Joe is in tears and he gave his hardened heart to Christ that night and surrendered his loaded 9mm Ruger on the way down the aisle to Leo. And he left town with us, and he traveled to Rome with our team, and that was our next destination. And he went on the streets with us and witnessed to people about Christ and the transformation in his life. So here you have it, three amazing people, Leo, Pierre, Joe, and uh, these three only represent a fraction of the people that we ran into in those days, incredible people. They weren't, and we weren't special. We were nobody special. We were just available. There were incidents and events that were at times unbelievable even to us. They happened. We all bear witness to their truth. I know Pastor Mark's told his stories before and everybody comes up and says, oh, you just made that up. And he says, no, I got witnesses. Well, here's one of Mark's witnesses right here. We traveled in a huge caravan, as I said, from city to city. By the spring of 1973, we had grown to 250 men, women, and children, living in tents and campers, moving from city to city in 13 semi-trucks and trailers. 
We ended up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. No food, lots of hungry mouths. One day a lady, feeling sorry for us, brought 20 fish that she had just purchased at the sea market. She said, I know they're not gonna go far, but maybe you can just feed a few of your kids in the, in the team. Thank you, ma'am. 20 fish for 250 people. Little fish. <laughs> we fried them up. We placed them in a pot. We served the kids and ended up not only serving the kids, we, sent, we served 250 adults and children, three servings each from those 20 fish. We got witnesses. I was the cook that night. I remember it. Don't ask me how that happened. But I did think about a miracle that happened with Jesus at one point. It, it occurred to me later on. Hmm, maybe that just happened to us. We traveled to India later on from Europe. There were 16 of us in that group, including my wife, Gail, and our first child, Amy, who was one year old at that time. We went overland, 9,000 miles, 27 days, through Italy, Yugoslavia, Greece, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and on our way to India. We traveled in three old Mercedes panel vans, and on our way through eastern Turkey, we paused at the foot of Mount Ararat. Anybody know what mountain that is? That's the, that's the mountain that Noah's Ark came to rest on. We wanted to take pictures of Mount Ararat. And at that point, we were arrested by the police and all four of our vehicles impounded because we'd been handing out Christian pamphlets along the way and Turkey is a Muslim country. And so we were taken into a police compound, jailed, and uh, to appear before a judge and then be jailed for who, who knows how long. Uh, so the judge, unfortunately, was in the town just behind us, about 200 kilometers behind us. So we went to the local gas station with our diesel vans to fill up for the trip back to the previous city to face that judge, only to find out there was no diesel available in town that day. So back to the police station. Then we ran across the street to the post office to call the, the American embassy in, in Ankara to let them know that we'd been arrested. And then we went to the bank to change more money into Turkish lira. And while we were at the bank, we meet a very distinguished army officer who asks about, uh, he spoke perfect English, what are you doing here in my town? And we explain our dilemma he marches with us over to the police station. Everybody in the station snaps to attention when this guy walks in upon his arrival. He confers in private with the police captain who had already torn the shirt off of one of my guys uh, because he was in a, in a rage, a Muslim rage. And then they come out of the office and the army captain says, you're good, you can go, let us go. And we completed our trip to India. The very first uh, uh, city we went to in India to hold meetings was the city of Pune, which is just east of Bombay. It's up on the Deccan Plateau, for those of you who know the country a little bit. And uh, usually in those, in those meetings, in, in, uh, we were in an open field. There was an open soccer field or an open cricket field. And we, had, we would have five to 10,000 people a night in those meetings. And during the meetings, we would always pray for the sick each night after the preaching. And you know, when, when you're talking that number of people, the line stretching out to one side of the stage was like, there were a thousand people a night coming, waiting to be prayed for by us. Uh, and every kind of sickness you can imagine, deaf, mute, 
blind, crippled, demon-possessed, addicted, tormented by fear, everything you can think of, every affliction you can think of, they came because we told them that uh, Jesus was the God who heals. You know, you, you kind of step out by faith when you say something like that in India. The very first person in line on that very first night that I was in India, in the very first meeting, was a blind man. Uh, his friends brought him. He was not only blind, he had no eyes. He had been born with no eyes, just sockets with fleshly tissue, totally blind from birth. I looked at my co-leader, Douglas, when they brought the man up to us and just shook my head. We're standing on stage in front of thousands of people. We've assured all these people that Jesus is the God who heals, and then this guy comes. All I could do was smile, shake my head. I just, I whispered under my breath before we prayed for the guy. I said to Doug, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this is happening. And Doug said, no, let's just go ahead and do this. Because he'd, he'd been there before and he, he knew. He knew what God could do. And so we prayed. Very simple prayer. Jesus, please heal this man's eyes that he might see again. Amen. And we stood back from him and we held up our fingers. We always did this because we wanted to avoid people accusing us of putting suggested thoughts in the minds of the people that we were praying for. How many fingers, said Douglas? The man appeared to squint a little bit and he shook his head and said, I don't know, but I see light. I see people moving in and out of the light. He'd never been able to do that. Douglas told him to come back again the following night. We'd pray for him again, hoping he wouldn't come back. And of course, next night, the first person in line. And he's there with his friends, and the friends are saying to us, you need to pray for him again. You need to pray again. He wants you to pray again. I'm looking at Douglas, seriously? You know, and so we repeated our prayer. We stood back. How many fingers, asked Douglas? And the man said, Three. And he was holding up three. Douglas took 10 more steps backward, held up one finger. He said, how many fingers? And the guy said, one. And he walked off the stage that night by himself. He needed no help, no guidance. The people went absolutely nuts because they knew who this guy was. And more and more people came to the meetings the following nights. I cannot explain to you how that happened. We went to the Philippines after India. We had our own boat in the Philippines. It was a 40-foot-long outrigger with a hollowed-out mahogany log for the hull and bamboo cross pieces on the top for outriggers. It had a 16-horsepower Briggs and Stratton motor with a long propeller shaft sticking out the back end of the boat. We had some great adventures going to places in that boat, I want to tell you, because the places we were going with that boat, you couldn't get there by road. We got stuck on a coral reef one night you shouldn't travel on the ocean at night in a small boat. It was in the middle of a thunderstorm. The boat, we hit a reef, and the boat overturned when we hit the reef. And we swam, swam around in shark-infested waters, getting the boat to shore. We went to an island where the last white faces they had seen were in, during World War II. We saw miracles in the Philippines the same as India, crippled people being carried to our meeting from their villages and those very same people walking back to their villages that same night. You know, there was a time when uh, the light bulb was a crazy idea, right? 
And there, there was a time when a cell phone was a crazy idea. It was something that Dick Tracy did. For those of you who remember Dick Tracy. That dates me, I know. When, when computers were a crazy idea. Then a personal computer in my home, really? And then a compact computer that I could carry around with me and now you can have a computer on your watch? Air flight, space flight, walking on the moon, all of these crazy ideas, huh? And this was our beginning. Young hippies, circus tents, semi-trucks. Who'd have thunk it? Nobody gave us a, a chance. This was our beginning. Rock and roll plus Jesus equals salvation for thousands. And now those hippies that came to Christ in those days are spread out all over the earth as missionaries for the King of Kings. And nobody gave us a shot. And many, many of my friends that I traveled with in those days are missionaries in places like India or Tajikistan or Pakistan or Africa or they've just spread out all over because God took these unwanted people and reached down and said, I'm going to prepare you for war and you're going to go out and be my soldiers. There are only two things that keep us from these crazy ideas and allowing those crazy ideas to become world-changing ideas. There's only two things, and that is fear and unbelief. The same Jesus that we pray to and sing to on Sundays is the same Jesus who said nothing is impossible for those who believe. You remember him saying that? The book of Acts does not contain a how-to on retirement financial planning. There is no how-to in the book of Acts on finding just the right spouse so you can get married and find just the right neighborhood in just the right school district with just the right neighbors. <laughs> I'm sorry to kill your buzz, guys. <laughs> but the Bible's teaching may help you to achieve that stuff, but it will, it, it, you can achieve all of that, and the Bible, if you live right, you're going you're gonna to be blessed. But here's the deal. You can't, there is no promise of fulfillment in that stuff. You get the difference? God will provide it, but he cannot provide you fulfillment in that stuff. It's just not there. It, it's not manufactured and given to us to fulfill us. He's the one who fulfills us. And that's why we answer to him. The book of Acts, however, is about living a life and believing the impossible and doing what cannot be done and what happens when someone is no longer afraid to live. It is a narrative for war. The quid pro quo, the fair exchange for the real life, that is your life in exchange for his, that means full surrender, full trust, full focus on the one thing that Paul talks about. This one thing I do. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one Thing I do. Think about that. God has called me heavenward, Paul said. My whole purpose in life, that one thing, is because God has called me heavenward. The ultimate prize. Was it God's intention that the me 
that in God called me heavenward? Was it his intention that was uttered by Paul that it was only meant for Paul? Was he the only one being called heavenward by God? No, it was a rhetorical phrase, meaning all of us. There's no fear of impossible in a man or woman who has been called heavenward toward this prize. There's no fear. For that person, this life is the preparation for the next life, and the next life is the real prize. And on the, and on the way to achieving that prize, this life is intended to become an adventure. A chain reaction of impossibilities. Oh, that couldn't ever happen. But maybe, with God in the picture, and then it becomes a cascade of possibilities that were impossible yesterday as God transforms every situation and every circumstance into something that you can't even imagine. Christians, we forget that we are the newborn, reborn descendants of the magnificent creature who was Adam. Remember Adam? He literally ruled his world with unspeakable power and creativity. You are him. Not the sinful, rebellious, weak Adam. You are a a new and robust and creative descendant of Adam, acquainted with making possible things that are impossible because of Jesus transforming your life. All things are possible to him who believes, said Jesus. He was speaking that to the new Adam, the new recreated Adam, who is you, that magnificent creature of God. Those stories and acts are not there for our intellectual or emotional amusement. The typical response from a skeptic is, oh my, oh, oh, Paul, oh, you raised that guy from the dead. Whew, wow, what compelling adventure. Good for Paul, period. Okay, now the stories I've shared tonight and the people I've described, these are not presented for their entertainment value to you tonight. That formerly, uh, there was a formerly demon-possessed lady that our celebration team met last March when our team went to India. It still happens. We met her in a little village called Ashgam. She's real. She's not a figment of my my imagination. She is a living human being who was set free from a real demon and now she loves Jesus and she started on her own adventure. There's no more effective witness, you guys, than an eyewitness. I met her and those of us on the team met her and we're friends with Susan and Shushil and they're the two who prayed for her to be delivered when we were all eyewitnesses as she stood there smiling at us in our service with her Bible, praising Jesus now. And Peter the Apostle shares with us, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There is nothing like an eyewitness. I share these stories because I hope that they'll help you to believe 
uh, as we continue into 2017, we can look ahead in two different ways, with expectancy or fear. Uh, the cool thing about this war that you and I are in is that we already know who wins. Isn't that something? We already know who wins. So there's no need to be afraid. And that's where our expectancy and our confidence come from. We know that we win. Therefore, we're not afraid. We can do anything. I hope that you'll join me in Celebration Church this year. As we look ahead, we are at war. I'm not minimizing that, but we win. The outcome is sure. There is no need to be afraid. Remember the stories in the book of Acts and the stories you've heard from us. These are not fiction. They are actual recorded history. Let this year be one in which you begin recording a new history. For yourself and your family, join with us in faith. Let's look ahead for an incredible 2017 here. Why don't you go on a mission trip yourself? Support a mission trip if you can't go. Volunteer to do something you've never done before. Next week, we're gonna be sending our Transition One students to Guatemala and South Africa. So pray prayers for them that you've never prayed before. Give generously to help out all of our outreaches, the T1 school that we've got here, the Transition One school, and the water wells trips. They're gonna be going on another one soon to, to uh, I don't even remember where. Where is it, El Salvador? They're leaving soon, that's all I know. Another team, and these are our youth that are gonna be going with Pastor Keith. We're, we're venturing out, man. No sitting still. Pray prayers for these people. Give generously to this. Uh, the outreach in Myanmar that Pastor Bob just came back from. I mean, we have to see a big God, right? And when we see a big God, he produces a big vision. And then that produces amazing results. So we win every way. And that's what I wanted to leave you with tonight. Now, uh, do we have uh, the... Uh, the, my phone number? There it is. So, let me get this phone out and make sure the battery's working. Okay, we're good to go. So, oh, here. Okay, so, um, I have, this is a Q&A session, by the way. <laughs> Do you have a, if you have any questions, just fire, fire away on that, to that phone number. Okay, here's one. We got a mic. Oh, okay, yeah, and if you don't have a phone, I can't imagine. But if you don't have a phone and you can't text, again, I can't imagine, there's a microphone. I'm just kidding. I don't want to make you feel bad. Uh, here's a, here's a, um, a, uh, a question. Do you ever struggle with the question, am I doing enough for Jesus now here in Green Bay after experiencing all those amazing miracles on a daily basis, or do you see miracles in the little things in life still on a daily basis, and what made you stop? Also, what made you stop? In other words, stop doing what? Kim. Traveling, you mean? I got tired, man. I just got tired and old and I don't want to travel anymore. I hate traveling. All you guys posting on Facebook about all your little cruises that you're taking and yippee, we're going to Tucson for the summer vacation. And I'm going, oh, go. I, I, don't, I don't even like to go to the store. I'm so tired of traveling. So yes, that's why I stopped. I just got tired of it. God moved me on to better things. Uh, I do struggle sometimes with, am I doing enough? But you know what? I mean, it is what it is. You, you know, God, if you surrender your life to him and you say every day to him, I'm yours today, Lord, 
I, I've got to believe that he's going to take care of the rest of that. He's going to answer that prayer, which brings me to Green Bay, Wisconsin, serving here in an amazing church with amazing people and the opportunity to share life with you guys. So I don't regret it. I don't feel like I'm lacking in any faith. I got my stories. We went through all this stuff, by the way, when I was in my 20s, okay? God would not put me through that in my 60s, believe me. All right, any other questions? Oh, here's one. All right, cool. Uh, what can a person do to stop looking forward in fear? All right, well, first of all, you have to recognize that fear controls our culture in America right now. It just controls everything that we do. And, you know, you, you don't have enough life insurance, they tell you. You don't have enough medical insurance, they tell you. You need to save more. You need to put more money away. You, the fear, 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 fear. Your car isn't new enough. Oh, you better be afraid or you're going to break down on the highway if you don't have a new car. All these things. So you're just getting hit with it all day long. You have to recognize that first. If you don't see all the fear that's coming at you in your culture right now, you're not going to be able to fight it off. The second thing that you can do to fight this fear of the future is to really have a Jesus moment where you sit down with God and you say, God, I, I just don't trust you. You have to be honest with him. You have to be honest with God in your prayers. And if you're afraid, you need to tell him you're afraid. Don't pretend you're not. And tell him and say, God, I am afraid. I need your help. If you don't think that's true, read through the book of Psalms and you'll find out that the, the people who wrote the book of Psalms were afraid 50% of the time. And what, did, what were they writing about? These were their prayers. The Psalms is a book of prayers about people who were desperately afraid for their lives. And who did they go to? Well, they, they didn't have antidepressants in those days, okay? And so they had to go to God with it. And that was their therapy. Their therapy was pouring out their heart to God, weeping until God came and intervened. And that was their history. That's what happened. And that's, that's what we have to do. Now, am I saying no use for doctors? No. There's some of us that have gone through trauma in the past and emotional trauma. Uh, I, do, I don't want to minimize that. You may need to sit down with a physician at some point if you're afflicted with fear that's irrational and doesn't stop. But that's a whole other message. Okay, but that's one thing you can do. Get connected with Jesus, pour out your heart to him, tell him everything that's going on in your life and, and just say, God, help me here. I, I'm afraid for no reason. It's not even rational. Help me to, you know, fill me with faith and new stuff. Okay, wow, ooh, look at all this stuff. I won't keep you too much longer. Uh, here's one. Uh, uh, when you traveled, intense preached, did anyone think you were there for the wrong reasons and how did they know? Well, if you were a typical tent evangelist in those days, you got up in a $500 suit and drove a Cadillac. We were not your typical tent evangelists. When they saw us, we looked like bums off the street. We were one of them. It was very difficult for them to criticize us. I hope that answers your question. They, how did they know that we weren't there for their money? <laughs> Look at me. I had peanut butter and jelly for, for lunch today and supper. We're not after your money. What happened to Pierre after he took care of Napoleon? I have no idea. <laughs> Pierre, are you here tonight? 
No, I, I don't. Some of these guys just disappeared off the scene and we never saw them again. Uh, do you still have contact with Bible potluck people? <laughs> Who brought all five of you to Christ? Actually, we do. Uh, some of them uh, we, we do and we stay in contact with over the years. The five guys in my band, we stay in contact. We actually had a reunion of our band uh, four years ago and we played at the Cornerstone Festival down in Illinois and uh, it was really fun. We hadn't seen each other in 40 years, and, and we had, but uh, those people who were there that sponsored that, most of them have passed on. Uh, they were older people, so maybe that answers your question. Uh, how did you, when and how did you first meet Pastor Mark? Well, <laughs> we were at a, uh, we had started our tent meetings in Decatur, Illinois, and Pastor Mark had heard about us in Milwaukee. Uh, he was not a pastor at that time. He was an 18-year-old drug hippie, and his brother Ed, both of them had heard about us. They'd both gotten saved in uh, Nielsville, Wisconsin at the Assembly of God Church there. And they'd found out about us and they wanted to travel for Jesus. So they called us, got a hold of us. We, I drove, I got a pickup truck and I drove to Marshfield, uh, Nielsville, Wisconsin and picked up Mark, Debbie and Ed, because Ed wasn't married at the time. We loaded their band equipment and their luggage into the pickup truck. Mark and Debbie rode with me in the pickup and Ed rode in the back of the pickup truck all the way back down to Illinois. Oh boy, poor Ed. And that's how we first met. How can one get your book? I don't go to church, I watch online. Thanks for encouraging words. I needed to hear this. Okay, so if you want to buy my book and you're online tonight and you can't be here, you can order my book online. It's called In Your Wildest. And it is, uh, or you can find it on my Facebook page, Joe Greer Facebook page. And then you can connect to Amazon. It's on sale at Amazon. I don't remember the price. But, um, and when you order it at Amazon, they print it the same day and you'll have it in about two or three days. So I don't, have to, have to, I don't even have to keep my own stock of my books. I can just have them printed at Amazon and they'll send it straight to you. Or you can go to smashwords.com and it, you can download a, an electronic copy of this book uh, onto your uh, iPad. Joe, okay. Joe, I wanted to say something. Yeah. God gave you great favor and continues to give you great favor <laughs> because of obedience. Yeah. Obedience is a big thing. Uh, if we're children of our Heavenly Father... He loves us, he has great mercy on us, but he does want us to obey, right? That's a very important thing. Oh man, how are we doing on time? Oh, we got a little bit, because the kids are still in thing, right? aren't they? Kids are, we're okay? Okay, all right. Um, do you think miracles seem greater than, than uh, what do we as a church need to do? Okay, well, I get this question a lot. Why don't we see the miracles that you guys are seeing back then, and the supernatural events, and you know, like, we went to India last week. You, you know, you see miracles like what I just described every day in India. The reason is materialism. It's a very simple reason. We are a materialistic society and it's leaked into the church and we no longer think in terms of the supernatural. We're not oriented to the supernatural like people in India are. And as a result, we're not acquainted with expecting supernatural results. It's not your fault. It's just what you've grown up in here in America. And so as a result, it's very, very difficult for Americans to conceive of laying hands on a blind person and them being able to see instantly. It's just difficult for us to conceive of that because of course we have doctors and you can go to a hospital and get all these cures and fantastic. So who needs a miracle when you can go to a doctor? And it's, again, not our fault. It's just the way it is in America. And so we have a bit of a barrier to overcome if we're going to believe God for the supernatural. Now, 
That doesn't mean he doesn't do supernatural things for us in answer to our prayers. Many of you have experienced healing from God in a supernatural way and you know who you are or relatives that you prayed for. I'm not saying he doesn't do it. It's just that you don't see it as much here as you would over there. And it's just, it's the, it's the culture. It's the fact that we're surrounded by materialism and we have access to things that they don't have access to in India. You know, it's just the way it is. Okay, so that's why. Uh, does your $1 discount apply to those watching online? No! Then I have to go in and reprogram my Amazon account, and I'm not going to do that. Do you keep in contact with your groupies from your gypsy days? Holy mackerel. Well, first of all, we didn't have any groupies. We had sisters in Christ. And in my brain, a groupie is different than a sister in Christ. Um, so, yes, we keep in touch, mostly by Facebook. I meet people on Facebook that I haven't seen in 40 years all the time. I love Facebook, don't you guys? You get to, all your high school buddies and your friends, and all of a sudden you're reconnecting and catching up on their lives. That is so cool. So, yeah, we get to see each other on Facebook all the time. It's awesome. I love it. Um, if a group of evangelists like you guys back in the day wandered into our church tomorrow and you wanted to camp on our parking lot, how inviting do you think our church members would be to them? Oh, you'd get to do that here because Pastor Mark and I, we know better than to turn you away. We'd probably come out and camp with you for one night. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, were you there when the devil left the possessed woman? Please describe what that entailed. I was not there when the devil left her, but Susan and Sushil, Pastor Sushil is a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, he's the one that hosted our Transition One students last year, Matthew and Luke, and they were there and prayed for them, and, they, and then I saw the lady uh, later, and then they testified to us about what happened in that service, but it was the real deal, I guarantee you that. They wouldn't lie to me about that stuff. Uh, in Turkey, what did the captain look like? Was he the angel of the Lord? <laughs> was he an angel of the Lord? He didn't look like an angel to me, and everybody knew who he was in the police station, so I don't think it was an angel. All right. Um, what instrument do you play in the band? I played lead guitar in the band. I don't do it much anymore. I've got too many other things going on. How do you become a part of a missions trip through the church? Well, you can contact Pastor Keith at any time. We also have advertisements in our bulletin and online for upcoming missions trips. And we have at least three of those a year. And so just stay in tune with us online or through listening to the announcements on Sunday morning. We always advertise for signups for those missions trips. <laughs> this has got to come from Mark. Why, why am I me? What, what if you are afraid to be not afraid? What if you are afraid to be not afraid? Uh, boy, that's not a problem I've ever had. I, you know, I don't know how to explain that to you, but call me and let's have a counseling session because I don't, honestly don't know how to answer that question. I, I understand it, but I, I don't know how to, to answer you there. Um... If you believe in God and you were baptized but never really have gotten into the Bible, even though you believe, what do you, what do you recommend to be able to grow and become obedient? 
if you believe in God, you're baptized, but you never really, you believe what you, what do you recommend to be able to grow and become obedient as well as get your family in gear? Um, boy, that's a, if you believe in God and you're baptized, but you never really gotten into the Bible, go to the closest church. This is 757 area code. Go to the closest church that you can find that preaches the Bible. Uh, start attending there, listening to the preaching in that church and uh, the pastor. And that as you grow and you imbibe the word of God through that man of God, you will become obedient. It will start to... You know, infuse your being and you'll start to change and grow. So, yeah, I would suggest you get into a church as soon as you can. Uh, whatever happened to Jerry and her baby? Um, Jerry, Jerry unfortunately had to surrender the baby because she went back into drug addiction. And I never heard from her after that. Uh, what do you tell someone who doubts the Bible is real because there's no original copy? Is this even true? There is no original copy existent today. That's a whole nother message and a whole nother sermon. I, can't, I don't have time to tell you about that tonight. I'm sorry. Do you think demonic possession is more common overseas than in the United States? I don't know. Has anybody here ever met somebody in America that's demon possessed? I have. Some of your teenagers, you said I heard somebody say? <laughs> Living proof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think probably for me, my personal experience is I've met far, far more demon-possessed people overseas than what we meet here. Now, I'll tell you what, we, we had this movement back in the 70s, people who wanted to cast demons out of everybody for every simple, stupid reason, you know. If you, were, you drank too much milk or something, you had a demon of drinking too much milk. Uh, if you were an alcoholic, you had a demon of alcohol, you know, and they were trying to cast demons out of everybody for about six or seven years in the 70s. That was overkill. Believe me, folks, when you run into a person who's demon-possessed, you'll know it. You will know it. There'll be no question in your mind that this person is demon-possessed because they will not be able to stand in your presence very long because you're a Christian. And number two, if you say Jesus to them, they'll freak out. So don't let anybody go trying to convince you that everybody's full of demons everywhere or whatever. It's, that's a bunch of hype that's not uh, substantiated in the Bible. What book do you need to start the Bible study? I'm, I'm not, that was not an entire text there, so I don't know what to do. Any other questions from the room tonight? We're about done? Okay, yeah? Was you well, were there pictures up there yeah. while I was talking? <laughs> oh, me and Mark and stuff? I, okay. I don't know what picture that was. Now, one of you guys had long hair, the other one had short hair. Or, and I'm like, okay, which one was which? Oh, wow. I don't, I don't remember that one. I'm sorry. I don't know who that would have been. Mark's pretty identifiable in those photos, and Debbie. Oh, that guy. Yeah, the guy in the red, that was Joe Amsterdam. That guy on, as you were facing that photo, the guy on the right-hand side was Joe Amsterdam. He was the pimp. And the long-haired guy was not me. He was just a buddy of mine. He was one of the guys in our team. 
Yes, okay, all right. Me and Mark, we were in the first picture, the fuzzy version of me and Mark. Anybody? Any further questions? All right. All right, guys, thanks for hearing me out. If you want one of the books, come see me. And then uh, God bless your week, and, and uh, hopefully Pastor Mark will be with us next, next Wednesday.